All your base are belong to us. Hello and welcome to Fake Geek Girls, a podcast looking at nerdy pop culture from both a fan and critical perspective, encouraging the things we love to do better. I'm Missy. I'm a writer and Constantine the show had a lot of egregious sins, but the worst by far was putting a Hozier song in the in the finale because there was a moment where they tricked me into thinking that it was really good with that music. So I was like, oh, fuck, I'm feeling it. And then I'm like, no, Missy, it's just Hozier. <laughs> I remember that part. and I was like, I like this. I don't I like Hozier. Not like a ton, but you know. I'm Mary, I'm a marketer, and um, Constantine was a extremely important part of my childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, Missy and I would rewatch this movie. Uh, I think I mentioned it last one. So many times. Yes. We had like certain movies that we would watch over and over again, which is crazy now because I don't necessarily like to rewatch a lot of movies, but I could rewatch that one often. Every time, it's good. Every time yeah. I see something new. It's, it's so good. It's a. I think it's a well-designed movie. I agree. And like the, what you were talking about, like the water bottle, I saw that and I was like, ah, oh, it's so good. It's so good. These little things where I'm like, how could you get constancy so wrong yet so right? Yeah. It's crazy. So today we're talking about Constantine the Surprise. movie. And Constantine the show. Unfortunately. Uh, <laughs> we're going to talk about both. This is kind of a Constantine movie heavy episode, primarily because... My feelings about the show can best be summed up by, wow, that casting, Ugh, everything else. <laughs> the casting was good. The, like, Matt Ryan truly is picture perfect, and I feel like he gets it. Like, I feel like he gets it, you know? But then the show doesn't get it. But we'll get into that. Um, the first thing I want to talk about is genre. And the reason I want to talk about genre is because I have had something to say about the genre of the movie Constantine since 2019. And I've been chewing on it ever since. I love this story. And by here's, the way. here's the backstory. So back in 2019, when you could just on a whim go do things, uh, I found out that there were, they were doing a screening of Constantine at the Mopop in Seattle, which is the Museum of Pop Culture. Um, and they have these small film screenings. They have two different kinds of, you don't care about this. Anyway, this was a small film screening where they will often have like a little lecture or a Q and a beforehand. Like I also went to one with Mike Mignola where they screened the, um, Ray Bradbury Moby Dick movie. And there was a Q and a with Mike Mignola ahead of it. It was a bonkers experience. But anyway, so I went to this Constantine screening with my husband and my friend. And um, before it, there was a very brief lecture by Heather Marie Bartels, who like, I think is like a horror studies person. Um, And she kind of had this discussion about the genre of the movie. Um, And she asked the audience, which was like, I don't know, probably 20 to 30 people, um, what genre the movie was. And some people responded horror. Some people said it was neo-noir. And there was like a long silence. And like, <laughs> it's, it, I felt awkward about this long silence. And I had an inkling of what she wanted to hear. And so I was just like, I got to end this. I got, I can't bear this any longer. Um, or I will die. So I had, I, so I raised my hand and I said something like paranormal thriller. And I want to stress, I have no beef with uh, Heather Marie Bartels 
I like I have no beef with her. Um, but she got this kind of knowing smile on her face. She was ready. She like she that's the answer she wanted so that she could say something. Um, and she asked, you know, why did I think it was a thriller rather than a horror movie? And the answer I gave, which was true, is that it's not all that scary. And like, I still agree with what I said there and I'll get into that more, but it's not the full picture of why I wouldn't call it a horror movie. But the thing is, uh, I was not the guest lecturer there, so (laughs) I couldn't like, I was not about to hijack her lecture to explain my full line of thinking. You should have. I just really wanted to like end the silence. I needed to end the silence. Um, I have my own podcast. (laughs) Like I don't need to podcast her her lecture, but But um, you were right. Like, I have a reason, and she disagreed with me, and she said it was horror, which I think is fair, and we'll get into that. Um, I don't think that she was wrong, and I don't think that, especially that she was wrong to push back on the idea that it isn't horror because it isn't that scary. Like, I don't I don't disagree with that. Um, that's precisely why I want to talk about it more, because I've been sitting and thinking about this, like, okay, <laughs> why did I feel this way, and why did she not feel this way? Like, what is the difference in our opinions of horror? Um, and now I finally have an excuse to talk about it. So thank you I for think, indulging me. I think my favorite part of this story is Missy having the absolute, absolutely no idea what to do because she wanted to wear a trench coat. That was a different screening. Was it a different screening? That oh, was that was, my that was Noir City. Oh, that's um, right. Where I was like, oh, I can't wear a trench coat to watch the film noir. People are going to think I'm trying too hard. And then I showed up and I was like one of the only people not wearing a trench coat. Uh, That's such a good story. That's adventures in my life. (laughs) Um, And that's why if you feel like wearing a trench coat, you should just wear the trench coat. So this question of genre is really interesting in the movie Constantine, I think, um, as it is in the Hellblazer comics and also in the show. Like the idea of what genre Hellblazer is and what genre Constantine belongs to, I think can lead us toward understanding what these stories are doing in a way that like just simply slapping them unthinkingly with horror or with fantasy or whatever like that. What is, what does that tell us about what the story is doing through the use of these different um, genre traits? So I would say that potential genres you could identify either the movie Constantine or Hellblazer or the show Constantine as would be things like horror, dark fantasy, mystery, and noir or neo-noir. I love listening to you talk about noir, by the way. Go- you just have such strong opinions. I'm so glad because it's like my my pet interest that yeah. nobody gives a fuck I'm about. I'm not super into noir, but I love listening Listen, to you nobody talk about is. I <laughs> love listening to you talk about it. <laughs> I'm so glad that people in my life fucking indulge me. Because no, I do. I just love when you have really strong opinions. Which is good. Because <laughs> I do. <laughs> well, it's one of those things, like, I don't know much about it. So, like, and I don't have, you know, skin in the game. Right. So I can just listen to you and be like, yeah. And then you swallow my opinions uncritically. So, yeah. like, I feel really validated. Everything is good. <laughs> so, and then someone brings it up to me. I'm like, actually. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, personally, I think that Hellblazer as, like, a media property not just the comics exists in a sort of like venn diagram where horror dark fantasy mystery noir neo-noir kind of overlap um i think a good hellblazer story like my favorite hellblazer story will probably have elements of one or more of these genres but not necessarily all of them at once like i don't think that for example every good hellblazer story needs to be a mystery i think dangerous habits is a really good hellblazer Mm -hmm. story but it's not it's not really a mystery we Mm -hmm. know like 
it's pretty fucking clear he's gonna die <laughs> and it's his own fucking fault so um so the, now having said that it leads us to the question of like why was my answer paranormal thriller when i think that horror is a crucial part of the hellblazer formula i think if i had to put this in a genre and if i really thought about it which is what i'm doing right now um i would say I think I think you're correct in the paranormal thriller, but I would also throw in there religious horror. I think that's so fair. I like I legitimately I I don't know enough about like a genre of of religious horror, but I think that this movie is a lot scarier if you believe yes. in that religion. I don't know of the genre of religious horror, but I want to know more. Yeah. <laughs> so, send it my way. I think that I don't think it's scary, but exactly what you said, like if you are a Catholic, this is a terrifying thing. Right. Ter- Cuz you truly could you, believe it. And it's not and we'll get more into this a little bit later, but like it's not just the fact that like oh demons are real, it's the fact that not only demons are real but we live in an uncaring universe that yeah. is like deeply scary. Well, and the fact that essentially heaven and hell are just playing a game with us. Right. That's terrifying. Yeah. Everything that you knew is true but also absolutely false. Exactly. So, I would call it a religious horror. I think that's totally like I think that that is totally fair. And I just don't have the um I don't have the personal understanding to say how mm-hmm. scary that is to a person who is in fact very religious or maybe who like grew up Catholic and now is not part of like the Catholic religion. Yeah. It might hit different, you know, for them than it does for me. Um, so like, why did I say paranormal thriller when I think horror is such a crucial part of the Hellblazer formula? Well, the easy answer here is because I needed that silence to end <laughs> and I was suffering internally. And I had a, I had a suspicion that that was the answer she was if looking for. If you didn't for. have a suspicion, what would you have said? Um, I wouldn't have answered oh, in all okay. honesty because I was sitting there chewing on it because I was like noir feels right but I have to have the political angle yeah. and I just don't have that right now so my the the other answer the other reason I said this is like fuck the movie's just not very scary is it like it's just not that scary yeah I'm not I, like I I am uh, I'm a baby I am too especially in high school I really struggled to watch horror movies despite being a person who like I clearly liked horror and I've always liked horror, but I'm like deeply affected yeah. by it. So I couldn't watch it. Um, but like this movie was scary enough that I got the, you know, I got the shivers at the appropriate parts, but not so scary that I couldn't sleep afterward, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I, and here's the thing. I don't think that how scary a movie to me, Melissa Brinks is, mm-hmm. is necessarily the thing that dictates whether a movie is horror or not. Right. Like, it's not that I am the, I am the person. If it scares me, it's horror. If it doesn't scare me, it's not horror. That's a silly thing to believe. Whether something is scary or not is obviously subjective. There are things I think is, is scary that Mary doesn't think is scary. I think people throwing up is very scary. Mary is not as afraid of this as I am. No, I think it's absolutely terrifying when people cut their arms Yes, and I'm just I like... I have to shut my eyes. I'm like, whatever. It'll be like, we're using this blood for a sacrifice. I'm not even talking about like slitting your wrist. I'm talking about like, I've cu- it happens so much in Supernatural. It was yeah. awful. Like, just be like, oh, we need to do a blood pact. Here's, let me put mm-hmm. a knife on my arm. I'm like, no, must Same, look away. We, and we were talking about this in the Discord too. Trypophobia, the oh, fear gosh. of holes, like yeah. close together holes. I Because I, like this came up because I was warning... I was warning the Discord if they do watch the season of Legends of Tomorrow where Constantine plays a major role, 
um, there's a demon who is just a trypophobia Ugh. trigger. And the thing is that, like, I watched that and I was like, oh, neat demon design. No. And Mary messages me and goes, hey, what the fuck? Absolutely not. <laughs> I hate it. Yeah, it doesn't. See, it doesn't bother me at all, but it's quite scary to somebody else. So Ugh. things that are scary are subjective, right? There's There are few things in this world that we can say are always scary every time to every person. Humans. <laughs> but I do have certain expectations of horror stories, right? Such as that they aim to scare me. If the story is not trying to scare me, then I don't know that it is horror. I also expect some kind of element of a threat to the main character, that there's a level of like intentional discomfort or transgressiveness in the story that aims to unsettle the viewer, that kind of thing. And that can get quite murky, right? Like I talked about the movie, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife and Her Lover, Mm -hmm. which is a deeply disturbing movie. I don't know if it's horror, but it certainly had a lot of these elements, right? But I don't know that a lot of people would be like, oh, it plays out like a horror movie. So it's, you know, genres are not hard and fast rules, but the reason I wanted to talk about it is because it can help us understand like what is the goal of the story being told? What are these like tropes and elements doing in this setting? Um, I think that I think that the effects of these elements are subjective, right? Because again, the things that scare one person might not scare me. The things that scare me might not scare another person. But if a movie is not trying to scare me or to scare its characters or to unsettle me in some way, then it doesn't strike me as horror. I feel like that is a crucial piece. It has to be trying to do one of those things. I think that's fair because like you're saying, you can find things that are scary that are not scary that doesn't make it horror. Mm -hmm. So I think the intentionality matters. Like the documentary Jesus Camp is not a horror movie, but it still (laughs) scares me. The the purpose of it was not to scare me. It was to inform me. And therefore, I'm not going to say it's a horror movie. I might jokingly say that, but you know, it's not, it's not the same genre. Yeah. It's not the horror genre. Um, like lots, lots of movies are horror, but they don't scare me. Right. There's so many bad horror movies that just aren't scary. Yeah. Uh, and there are lots of movies that scare me, but aren't horror like Jesus camp or, uh, mysterious skin. That's a fucked up one. Yeah. Uh, fuck. What's another one? Requiem for a dream. Like we had a good long conversation about that one in the Discord. Yeah, like those kinds of these kinds of movies are not horror, but they scare me. But they're they're having a different intent, right? I mean, maybe the intent of Requiem for a Dream is in fact to be a horror film, but you know what I mean. Um, Constantine doesn't quite meet these criteria for me. Uh, It may aim to scare me in certain scenes. Um, and there certainly is a threat to Constantine as a character, right? But most of the scares are these like really big fears of an indifferent universe mm-hmm. and humanity as the ball in like this great game of soccer or whatever played by <laughs> beings that we can't comprehend. Constantine is under threat, but it's less the demons and more the consequences of his own actions, right? Like he he really fucked himself with this one. Um, and that just seems so Constantine. Exactly. He's just being Miley. He's just being Miley. Uh, the world is under threat, of course, but the threat is all upside down, right? It's angels and demons working together that you have to fear as opposed to just demons. Mm-hmm. And I think for the right audience, as we were talking about, this might be horror. Mm-hmm. You know, for the for the right person for whom this is like something that they're deeply afraid of, the idea of an uncaring universe or the fact that, you know, the be- the beliefs that they've had about good and evil are not as clear cut as they believe. For somebody for whom that is a legitimate like concern, then I'm sure that is quite scary. For me, a person who is already dissettled on the idea of the universe is uncaring, then I'm just <laughs> like, yeah, it is like that. <laughs> That's a, mm-hmm, you got it. Correct. Um, 
So like for me, it's, it just doesn't register as a horror movie, even if it has scary moments, even if it has demons, even if it has like possession and that kind of stuff. What led me to describe it as a thriller was the way that it feels more like this particularly intense supernatural infused crime or mystery or even noir we'll come back to noir i have a whole section on it <laughs> why um, wouldn't you of course any any moment i get to talk about noir is a good moment for me um like it feels more like it is a supernatural infused version of one of those genres rather than pure horror um characteristics of thrillers just in just as a general definition include an emphasis on suspense an urban or suburban setting crime violence etc which i think fit really into constantine as a film like all of those things kind of they work yeah they match up with what's going on in the movie checklist it off thank you yes exactly um, You're welcome. <laughs> a supernatural or paranormal thriller is totally like a potential genre. It's not like something that is like, oh, this is an established genre with a specific set of rules. But I think it's totally a potential genre. And I feel like the emphasis on suspense over true scares makes thriller a better fit to describe the movie than horror to me. I think the reason I ins- ins- I would choose religion instead of paranormal is because I feel like paranormal is very, and like this could just be my bias, like, ghosts and things Mm -hmm. like that and like demons could possibly fall into that but but paranormal fear and religious fear are very different and separated from me and so i can see the paranormal but when i really think about it it has to be religion no i think that makes total sense i'm using paranormal as like a a very broad i know i know what you're saying a very broad term but i think religious the thing the thing that would make me hesitate to use religious as opposed to paranormal is the fact that like religious horror for all I know and this is totally my own ignorance <laughs> religious horror for all I know could be the left behind series like if I use the word religious horror people might get a very different idea of what's happening in it than if I say paranormal horror I see what you're saying. Um, But I think that religious horror is probably better in terms of like communicating what's going on in it in the same way that urban fantasy as a genre Mm -hmm. me like is when it's used as a marketing term, it means like a very specific form of urban fantasy. That's like, and this is a very reductive. I know not all urban fantasy is like this, but hot female vampire hunter with a crossbow torn between the relationship with her hot werewolf boyfriend and her hot vampire boyfriend. I've read that. Yeah. And like the the, one was a gargoyle. Nice. And she just decided to be with all of them. Good. Good for her. Yeah. This is not like, this is not me disparaging this genre, but urban fantasy, the words mean something different to me than the accepted understanding of what the genre is. So when I say paranormal thriller, that means something I think that that is more broad and inclusive than religious horror, but mm-hmm. I feel like religious horror might be, might summon up images of something different than I mean. Yeah. Does that make sense? No, that makes total sense. Okay. Um, and this, the reason that I say it's a thriller as opposed to horror is not because I think horror is a lesser genre, which was part of the argument that Bartels was making. She was, she was saying like, not calling it horror because you like it or whatever is you know, disparaging the genre of horror as something lesser, which is a popular, yeah. like it's the, it's the reason that we don't see really good horror movies ever nominated for awards. There's this understanding that all horror movies are like beach volleyball murder volume seven. Right. Which is not true. We, and like everybody knows that, but it was a big fucking deal. Like when get out was nominated for major awards because horror movies don't usually get nominated mm-hmm. for those kinds of awards. Um, if they do, it's like sound. Yeah. Or makeup or something yeah. like that. Um, 
and and that's like that's the argument that Bartels was making the idea that people view horror as schlocky and I, and I obviously don't agree with that I love horror yeah I think it's hard it's hard for me to I I completely I think that that sentiment of people feel that way it's absolutely true but I har- it's hard for me to attach it to Constantine because so many people fucking hated this movie it's it's kind of ha- <laughs> it's really had a renaissance I think it has it the has. reevaluation of uh, Keanu Reeves's ca- career the Keanu sense has I did not come up with that but um, but it's good that has led people to reevaluate this movie and be like no it's good actually yeah it has its flaws but it's like it's good actually it's um, one of the better comic movies I agree like it's probably my favorite comic book movie it's up there it's i'd have to really think about it but i i would say probably yeah it's it's up there at least it's a comfort food movie for me which is fucking ridiculous but it but, is. you know if you knew us in high school live, live and let live yeah um so obviously we don't think that horror is a lesser genre that's and that's not why i i said it was thriller over horror um i would not if somebody called constantine a horror film to me i would not be like you're wrong and here's why because i think that's a silly thing to do um i think there are elements of traditional horror demons right Uh scary uh and even cosmic horror like the forces that control the world are outside our comprehension and they don't care about us that's cosmic horror baby yeah um and if there is a specific kind of horror for christian people especially catholics i think this would be it yeah. right also think- people don't like crabs also people don't like crabs <laughs> i love that and part of the crab <laughs> so good love it it's so good um i love that demon same it's just you just want to be like it's friend right yeah no um but yeah there's also a niche subgenre called occult detective, which is precisely oh. what it sounds like. Um, but to be 100% honest, I don't think that sheds much light on what a story is trying to do in the way that horror or noir as genre markers do. Like horror tells us the story is doing something particular. Noir tells us the story is doing something particular. Occult detective kind of tells us that a story contains an occult detective, right? Um an occult detective story is a mystery with supernatural elements, but that still leads us to ask, okay, what's the mystery doing? What's the horror doing? Let right? me tell you, if you searched occult detective, there's some good covers. I bet. <laughs> there's some good covers of these books. Um, but to be fair and complete, both the movie and the show Constantine could reasonably and perhaps most accurately be called occult detective stories. Like, So I think that occult detective is probably the most accurate way to describe Constantine the movie and the show. Like if I say that, you're going to be like, oh, a detective who solves occult mysteries. Got it. That's yeah. going to tell you more about it's what's a happening. Yeah, that's going to tell you more about what's happening in these stories and whether or not you're going to like them than if I say it's horror. Right. Because Mm -hmm. I think or even if I say paranormal thriller and like I said, all of that was primarily about the movie. But I think we can say similar things about the show. The elements of horror are there. There's ghosts, there's demons, etc. But it doesn't feel like horror to me. I would agree. I think dark fantasy is probably a better term for it, which is fantasy that incorporates elements of horror into the story without veering strongly into the horror genre. Um, though that even that's contentious because some people argue that dark fantasy must be set in a secondary world. So like hmm. not our world, it would have to be set in, you know, Middle Earth or Narnia or whatever. <laughs> um, otherwise, it's otherwise they would consider it contemporary fantasy. So y- y- genres are hard is, is the thing. Um, I don't think that a lack of horror is the biggest problem with the show by any stretch. I think that they could have fallen back on mystery or neo-noir and still been a successful Hellblazer adaptation or if not a straightforward adaptation, something that feels akin to Hellblazer in the way that I would argue Constantine in the movie does. 
Um, but I think that there are a few things working against the show for me, which I'll get into later. So now it's time for me to talk about my favorite thing, which is noir and politics. Because I think that, like I said, I mentioned neo-noir as a possible genre for, for, Hell, for a Hellblazer adaptation. Not necessarily the movie, not necessarily the show. But I think that neo-noir is a potential. But I was pretty skeptical skeptical that's not a word i was pretty skeptical of calling the movie and the show we'll get to that eventually um noir because a i'm highly skeptical of neo-noir for reasons i've talked about before um and b i wasn't able to immediately connect the mood of the film to cultural anxieties of the time period um so noir is notoriously difficult to define uh especially because there's contention over whether it is even a genre um, or if it's a filmmaking style. And certainly there are visual hallmarks to noir and no- noir because of that noir is easily parodied, right? Like if I say something is noir, you no doubt have an image in your mind of a man in a trench coat kind of holding a gun, looking around a corner. Maybe there's some slatted blinds. There's a woman there. Like, right? Like that's kind of what's going on in your mind when I Roger say- Roger Rabbit. Roger Rabbit is a great noir, actually. <laughs> um, I'm not- It was your introduction. I'm not joking. It's a good noir. Um, but film noir was not a conscious style on the part of noir filmmakers. Like they were not sitting down and saying, I'm making a noir film. Did you know that they put a trench coat on, what's her name, in the Roger Rabbit um, ride? Was she too sexy? She was too sexy to put on a trench coat, and she looks cool. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So noir wasn't a conscious filmmaking style. Uh, It is is something that was... It was, it's a term that was applied retroactively. Like we had a decade or so of these films and then people were like, oh, this needs a name. Let's call it noir for dark film, film noir, dark film. Um, so when I say I'm skeptical of neo-noir, what I mean is that I'm not entirely convinced that media trying to be noir today can be successful because it will often lean on the fears of the past, the femme fatale, anxiety about acceptable masculinity, etc., and visual cues such as the slatted blinds, harsh lighting, rather than trying to encompass what those things might mean today. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So watching the movie, Constantine, it is clear that there are visual hallmarks of noir, right? As well as some use of expected noir tropes. Constantine himself functions and dresses like our expectation of a noir detective. Like you see that guy and you're like, that guy's probably a detective of some kind. Or he's going to flash me. Or he's going to flash me. Um, There's a mystery to be solved, right, in the story. It starts off with a pretty, like, grounded mystery of, like, if you strip away the, the, the fantasy horror elements, it's a story of, you know, a woman dies by suicide, but her sister doesn't believe it was suicide. So what, who really killed her? That's the, that's what the basis of the story is. That's a mystery. Um, She hires him kind of to solve a mystery. Exactly. Um, There's very wry and dark humor and a lot of cynicism. Everything feels hopeless. That's all quintessential noir. That's like what we expect from a noir story. Um, which is also in line with the comics, which I would say are often successfully channeling film noir. Except they're funnier. Except they are funnier. Um, the narration boxes, which I'll return to a bit later, um, they add the psychological component common in noir. Like, this is a thing that you don't often see in noir parodies, is the number of, like, psychedelic dream sequences. (laughs) Highly underrated noir trope. Um... The clear references to contemporary politics bring in cultural anxieties, perhaps too directly for noir, um, but I wouldn't classify noir as the primary genre of the comics. 
Um, there's often anxiety over the role of the man in modern society, but in a distinctly contemporary way. We didn't read those arcs, but it's there, especially in The Fear Machine um, and The Family Man. Um, but what was missing for me in terms of being like, yeah, Constantine the movie is, is noir, is the elements of culture anxiety. Um, we're looking at a post 9-11 film here. It came out in 2005. Um, and the story has been set in Los Angeles rather than in England. So I would expect some connection there, right? Like I would expect it, as be, it would be about like the place of America in a global conflict or in this case, like a universal conflict or the, the role of individuality or even in a hostile sense, like the, the um, hostile H-O-S-T-E-L. Um, <laughs> Not the, a place you stay. Not a place you stay. The the kind of anxiety about um, a torture of the of the white body by a by a foreign other, right? Like yeah. I would expect those kinds of things from it. The things we were dealing with, right? Exactly. Um, but there's really not. The, I mean, there like of course there are foreign invaders in the demons. There are references to deportation. Mm-hmm. Um, so the film is of course not apolitical, right? Like, in, and then what is? Yeah, nothing is. But the even the references to like the foreign invaders and deportation feels more almost kind of edge lordy ang- language choice. <laughs> than it does like <laughs> intentional commentary and like I think you could argue that I'm super wrong on that but that's but how it feels at the time though that feels very like the t- of its time yeah that would be like we got to put this in there yeah it's it, like because I mean I don't know just something about it just feels like I don't think you really thought about what you were doing here um, or like someone's like oh I heard my kids say this put yeah. it in there um, in fact I would say the film's biggest focus is on free will Um, The manipulation of individual will and the invasion of Mammon with the assistance of heaven. So, I mean, like, I suppose you could maybe craft an argument that this is a movie about how George Bush did 9-11 or something. I hate that. (laughs) I hate that. And I'll fight anybody who says that. I'm changing now the the entire rest of this outline so that I can argue that George Bush did 9-11 and Constantine proves it. Okay, well, I'm going to argue that that this movie is about free will and I'm going to take that and walk out. (laughs) Um, but that that argument feels tenuous to me. It feels does like, it? Yes, it feels like an attempt. It feels like an attempt to to say something that maybe the movie was influenced by, but not actually trying to do, or just sound a certain way. Yeah, like really smart without being really I, smart. I say this with all the love. It sounds like a college essay, like undergrad college essay, yeah. and like I've read some good undergrad college essays that argue things that are tenuous like that, and I liked them. So like. Listen, I would read it. Yeah, I would read it. Um, That's not a lie. I would read it. <laughs> but if I'm going to call something noir, I need some connection to modern anxieties or anxieties of, you know, mid 2000s. Um, maybe it's the idea that God is dead. Right. But that actually goes all the way back to the 1800s, which is not to say it can't also be contemporary. But that didn't feel right. I was like, maybe it's that. Mm, I don't know. Is it something about the Catholic Church? Well, Maybe, but truthfully, I don't know about the, enough about the Catholic Church in 2005 to make that connection. Yeah, I I like this idea that it's about the religion and it's about Christianity. Just I think that what's going on, what was going on around that time, I was very politically, not politically active, but politically aware for a high schooler, I guess. We were the Rock Against Bush generation. Yes, we were. <laughs> not my president. 
Um, and we lived in a religious town, uh, a religious small town that was conservative, that wouldn't allow L- any LGBTQ clubs because then my, f- <laughs> my first published work was a letter to the editor of our town newspaper about how we should not reelect George Bush. Yeah. So this idea of it, like talking about the anxieties around religion and and free will, especially when it comes to like abortion, which is coming back up. Not that it ever went away, but it was a huge topic when we were in high school. Like it was a huge topic, um, especially like when it comes to like teaching sex ed and things like that. Mm-hmm. So this idea of like being like a religion forcing somebody to have a child and then like not giving a fuck afterwards felt like when I read that in that one, I was like, yeah. No, that that hits for me. Yeah, I'll go into that a little more, like a little deeper with some some sources to back it up. But um, I like just watching this movie in isolation. I didn't really get it. I was just like, I don't know that I can make this connection myself. Um, I think that might be why I did love it so much, though. I feel like there was it was tickling that yeah, tickling because, that part of you that you didn't you weren't sure how to put words exactly. To. Well, because I was so obsessed, I was so obsessed with like religion and religious history. I was not religious mm-hmm. at all. Every time I say that, people are like, "Oh, religion." I'm like, "No, I'm I'm not religious. I just think it's really interesting." So it really did hit that for me. So mm-hmm. so when it. So I feel like even more so I can just get behind this idea of it being like the anxieties of religion taking over our country. Mm -hmm. Uh, Like, I I don't really feel like there's like a very clear, this is absolutely what the movie was saying angle to this. Mm -hmm. Although I think there's some interesting texture. Like, I mean, even the stuff about deportation and the demons being invaders and that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. I think that kind of thing is like, okay, this was clearly on the mind of the director in in some way. Yeah. Which is like actually fine with me. It doesn't have to, because I don't think that most noir directors were sitting out, sitting there going, I am making a movie about the anxiety of being a man in contemporary society with women getting jobs. That scares me very much. Okay. (laughs) Like, I don't think that's what was going on, but one of the main appeals of Hellblazer to me is politics. And because Mm -hmm. I think that the movie feels noir, I think that it is worth picking apart some of the potential political angles of both the movie and the show to kind of figure out what's going on there. It almost feels like if there wasn't the political anger or anger I and mean, political angle, it would fail hard. I right? I agree, and I think that is why the show didn't work for me. Yeah, very well. there was no po- politics. Yeah, we'll get into that. <laughs> so um, bad. That's my favorite part about the comics was mm-hmm. the politics. So. Uh, this is from an essay called Gabriel Abortion and Anti-Enunciation in the Prophecy, Constantine and Legion, which is by Jeffrey Tripp. I'm not going to read this whole quote, but I'm just going to kind of give you the gist of it. Um, he has a section in this essay uh, titled Abortion and Rape, and it's talking about the context of um, like the surrounding context of the Constantine film. So in this art, in this essay, he suggests that increasing attention paid to things like emergency contraception, abortion, rape, and other sexual health issues were in the background of the political climate that led to Constantine. Um, He cites the women's health and human life protection act, which was from South Dakota, uh, which the state legislature of South Dakota aimed to pass between 2004 and 2006. And the movie came out in 2005. Um, The bill banned all abortions and defined conception at fertilization, which would ban many forms of birth control as well as emergency contraception. Um, The bill actually was passed in 2006, which was the year after Constantine was released, but it was repealed by voters later that year. 
The bill was intended, like outright stated, to be a step toward overturning Roe v. Wade uh, in the U.S. Supreme Court, which is still a very serious concern, right? Yeah. Like it gets scarier and scarier every fucking day. Um, it's like it's like history is repeating itself with like emo music and fashion, but also politics. Yeah, it's so interesting. Yeah, it's scary. Um, I have already gone through this. Yeah. Constantine is obviously not a movie about sexual health or abortion access, right? Like if you you just you don't come out of that movie and you go, that was a movie about abortion access. If only she could have gotten an abortion. <laughs> yeah. But birth and pregnancy play a substantial role in the movie, even if it's in a really sideways fashion. Um, so here's a quote from that essay by Tripp, uh, who writes, Angela is associated with Mary during her first demon attack when all the lights on a city street go dark, except those in a church window featuring a lit statue of the Virgin. The detective is presented as the common trope of the tough-as-nails professional woman. She lives alone. She's apparently not in a relationship, nor does she ever refer to past relationships with men or women. There are some feeble attempts to build sexual tension between Angela and Constantine that never amount to much. She is a cinematic virgin, driven only by her profession and the need to avenge her dead sister. Angela's loss is made all the worse by a church that refuses to believe that Isabel has not killed herself. The church's betrayal is signaled strongly in the later... in. The later scene where Angela is possessed by Mammon, not only is she assaulted in the same pool in which her sister died, there's a large cross on the side of the hospital looming over her while the pool itself is cruciform. Such a good scene. Mm -hmm. So good. When Constantine arrives and attempts to exorcise her, the repeated dunkings in their struggle give that scene the feel of a violent, forced exorcism. So there's some interesting stuff happening with the relationship between the church, gender, sex, and death in the subtext of the movie, right? Mm -hmm. Angela is a fairly devout Catholic. Our first introduction to her is her confessing that as a police detective, she's killed two more people since her last confession or whatever. Um, she is the sister of a woman in a psychiatric facility who has always had visions of supernatural occurrences. Uh, and Angela is in fact denying her own psychic gift, even though it seems to continue manifesting in her ability to find criminals. Like you can deny that gift all you want, but it keeps manifesting. Like when she's just like, I always knew where she point. Exactly. Where she, that was such a good scene too. Uh, even the fact that she is a female police detective adds a bit of texture. In real life, only about 18% of police detectives are women hmm. in the U.S. Um, and as this passage of the essay notes, she's depicted as this tough-as-nails woman. What we don't know is whether that's because, like, is she is she depicted as a tough-as-nails woman because that's the kind of person that she is? Or is it the kind of person she has to be to succeed as a police detective? The movie isn't necessarily interested in that question, no. but it's always worth asking. I think she has to be. Yeah, I agree. Especially because she, because so much of her life has been denying this supernatural power that yeah. she has. Well, I think there's also just some guilt around mm -hmm. her sister. And I feel like if there wasn't, if there, if the guilt didn't exist, if the guilt exists and there, I feel like then there is this, I have to. Yeah. Um, and further, Angela is in conflict with her church because she doesn't believe that Isabel, also a devout Catholic, would die by suicide because suicide is a mortal sin, which would damn her forever without any chance of redemption, even though, as we learn later in the film, she is attempting to do something selfless through She's this a sacrifice. Yes. She knows that Maimon needs the body of a powerful psychic and assistance from heaven to cross over. And so she removes her body as a possible avenue for him to do so mm -hmm. while also alerting her sister through her out of character suicide that something is deeply wrong here. What she's actually doing there is selfless, right? Mm -hmm. She knows she's going to hell and she does it anyway. And she's seen hell. And she has seen hell. So like her sacrifice is in fact like a noble action that only points us more toward the hypocrisy of this system. Yeah. Um, Hence religious fear that everything you thought is wrong. Right. 
Um, which is further explored through Constantine, who died by suicide as a kid, but served heaven for the rest of his life. But it turns out that heaven wants faith, not service. They don't give a shit what you do. They care what you believe or where you like where your heart is, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we get to the end and Constantine and Angela initially fail to stop Mammon, Angela's body becomes the site of an unwanted metaphorical pregnancy. A violent one. Yeah. In what appears to be a church-run psychiatric hospital, right? It's pretty much how I think Bob expects when they get pregnant. <laughs> how the baby's gonna act um the church is everywhere but uncaring at the horrors taking place inside of it right and mammon attempts to literally break his way out through her abdomen which sometimes swells in a way reminiscent of pregnancy yep uh angela begs constantine in no uncertain terms to get it out of her which harkens to abortion Mm -hmm. interestingly gabriel does aim to get it out of her but he doesn't care whatsoever if angela lives or dies just feels just like the just like the religious Mm -hmm. fight of like have the baby but i don't give a shit what happens afterwards i just want you to have this baby no matter how violent this birth is because of whatever reason you're being forced to have a child Mm -hmm. gabriel doesn't care about anything except the success of bringing mammon into the world and torturing humans so that they're worthy of god's love like that's all that gabriel cares about um Though what happens with Mammon and Angela is not a perfect metaphor for abortion. Fetuses are not evil, right? Like, we can agree on that. I mean, I never met a fetus. I guess that's true. Maybe they are all evil. They do, like, try and scratch out of you. Break your ribs. Jesus. Make you pee a lot. Um... (laughs) I think that... I think that fetuses are, generally speaking, not evil. Um... But I think it does mirror some very strong feelings about pregnancy Mm -hmm. from my own perspective as a person who does not want children and is actually quite afraid of pregnancy. um, It's terrifying. And the idea that the body, the body changes that come with it, literally like just thinking about the thinking about having a baby inside of me is deeply terrifying. It makes my skin crawl. So interesting. I mean, I'm terrified of I'm terrified of birth, but I don't obviously don't have that same terror you have. No, I feel sick. At the thought of being pregnant. Like, it's it really scares Does me. Does it come down to some type of, like, not being in control? No, I just don't like the idea of something being inside <laughs> of me, moving around. That's <laughs> fucked up. Get out of there. Well, that's ultimately what we want. This isn't your home. Um, again, that doesn't mean that I believe fetuses are evil and nobody should give birth, which would be a ridiculous thing to feel. Only that the sense of horror about the body and something unwanted growing inside me does in fact resonate with me. Like that deeply terrifies me. Um, And further to have the woman's body be a vessel rather than representative Ah. of a person tracks with anti-abortion legislation, especially more restrictive legislation that values the the life of a fetus, even the like unviable life of a fetus over the life of the mother. cells. Yeah. In this case, the metaphorical pregnancy is forced upon her in a violent attack that we can read as sexual violence. Mm -hmm. But the life within her, in this case, Mammon, is valued by heaven. Gabriel is ultimately rejected by God, but still acts as the arm of heaven in much the way that the church might uh, over the life of the human. Um, Another potentially notable thing in the early 2000s was in 2001 when Pope John Paul II made, made sex with minors a grave sin. This is bonkers that it took this long to like be like well we gotta say this yeah i think it was i think it was kind of one of those things that like maybe they 
thought went without saying. <laughs> I um, hope, God, I hope so. But uh, it wasn't until 2001 when this specifically was made a grave sin, which means one that must be repented before death or the perpetrator goes to hell. This is following on decades of reports of sexual abuse within the Catholic Church, but also churches more broadly. I don't want to unfairly say that only the Catholic Church has sex scandals. Um, now, I don't think this movie is talking about rape or abortion or sexual abuse by the church necessarily, right? I don't think it's like making a clear allegorical representation of any of these things. What I think it's talking about more broadly is the idea of hypocrisy and specifically religious and powerful hypocrisy, because throughout this movie, we see the church and agents of heaven make choices without compassion, right? Mm -hmm. That's hypocritical when you look at like the teachings of these churches, Um, the only really like quote unquote nice thing we see is Constantine being welcomed into heaven for sacrificing his life for Isabel's. Otherwise, as Constantine points out, God is more of a kid with an anthill. He's watching things go on to see what happens. He's not actually giving a shit about the individual lives that he's watching. Um, another interesting angle here is brought up by Julian Chaw, who writes specifically about Keanu Reeves as a person of mixed race descent. Um, Keanu Reeves is native Hawaiian, Chinese, English, Irish, and Portuguese, but he's often read by audiences as white, mm-hmm. especially by white audiences. There's, uh, in, I can't remember what it's called. He's in a movie with, I think it's Ali Wong, and they kind of talk about that. And Always Be My Baby? Yeah. First of all, good fucking movie. Yeah. Uh, second of all, I think she there. I think it was outside of the movie. There was a conversation about it, how she wanted him to be in it because he's Asian, and he was like, "Thank you." <laughs> no one ever like validates that about me. Yeah, and I, it really opened my eyes. I'm like, I never thought about that. Mm-hmm. Like, I never, I, I would have been like, "Oh, white dude," but he's not. Right. Um. So white audiences tend to read Keanu Reeves as white and the roles he has played throughout his career have rarely, if at all, involved race in any way. He typically plays a character who could theoretically be of any race, Mm -hmm. like race is not a key part of the character's arc or whatever. Um, Cha makes Reeves' race a central focus of Constantine as an outsider, Mm -hmm. um, which is really interesting in a perspective I hadn't considered at all. So Really glad that I stumbled upon this essay. So this is a quote from that. Um, it's called There is No Spoon, Transnationalism and the Coding of Race slash Ethnicity in the Science Fiction Fantasy Cinema of Keanu Reeves, which is by Goodness. Julian Cha. Love the names that these yeah. academics put on things. It's like a fucking follow-up boy song. <laughs> Um, So this is a quote from that essay. When the viewer is first introduced to Constantine, he arrives at an apartment building where he has been called to the scene to perform an exorcism on a teenage girl who has been possessed by a demon. The building is of a largely Filipino populace, Filipino populace implied by the Filipino flag seen in the kitchen as the mother of the possessed girl is making tea. And also during the exorcism, when the possessed girl whispers, we will kill them all into Gallic to Constantine. The girl is further abjected in this scene by not only being a minority, but also being possessed and viewed as infected and impure. In this scenario, the stereotype of Asian Americans living in their own ethnic cliques and remaining in isolation away from the rest of mainstream society in their private ethnic enclaves is put on display and reinforced. Reeves has the ability successfully to enter this restricted and closed off world due to his heritage and masked Asianness. Father Hennessy, Pruitt Taylor Vince, who called Constantine is a white man is a white male and seems out of place and had been unable to exercise the demon while Constantine's apprentice Chaz played by Shia LaBeouf is also a white male who must wait in the car and cannot enter this exclusive space of Filipino-ness. Interesting. 
So Reeves is not Filipino, but unlike Chaz and Father Hennessy, he is able to enter the space of racial isolation to exercise the girl. It may be that the filmmakers weren't thinking of Reeves's race whatsoever, but it is interesting that as an exorcist with knowledge of heaven and hell, and as a mixed race actor who many read as white, he's almost liminal in this story. Hmm. He's neither entirely one thing nor another, and he occupies multiple spaces and identities at once. And I find this especially to be interesting, an interesting interpretation of Constantine because he has traditionally been white, blonde, and blue-eyed, giving him not just hmm. the appearance of a white person, but almost a Nordic master race appearance. Um, he's not just white. He's extremely yeah. white. I just keep thinking of that one TikTok sound that's like, a white man. <laughs> I think it's from New Girl, New Girl or something. <laughs> and because the character has traditionally been rooted in leftist politics and opposing oppression, that makes him interesting to me. Though I would love to see more interrogation of Constantine, the character's whiteness. And that's yeah. really where I hoped the new series from Spurrier, Bergara, Bidikar, um, Campbell, and Belair was going. Um because they make so many references to Britishness as opposed to whiteness mm-hmm. um, when whiteness was actually the appropriate thing to be addressing there. Yeah. That was something I really wanted to see examined. Um, and this becomes extra interesting to me when you consider the reception to Keanu Reeves as Constantine versus Matt Ryan as Constantine. There are quite a few compounding factors here. So I want to be clear that by bringing this up, I am not saying that not liking Keanu Reeves as Constantine makes you a racist. <laughs> I want to make that abundantly clear. There are so many reasons not to like Keanu Reeves as Constantine that are, that are not racially motivated. Like he's literally just not look doesn't look. It, it, he just and, doesn't. and his acting is very different. Like yeah. it, it's totally There's fine. There's no humor. I'm not saying you're a racist Where if you don't are the puns? like if you don't like Const- or if you don't like Reeves as Constantine. That's not what I'm arguing. But some of the negative reception to the movie was that Reeves was extremely miscast. He's neither British nor blonde. He's kind of emotionless, etc. Matt Ryan was exceedingly well received, despite the overall poor reception to the show, because he is blonde and British. At least in the show, I think he's actually brunette in real life. Um, and therefore, he looks the part. So it seems that looking a specific way is seen as an intrinsic part of being John Constantine to many fans. And that way happens to not just be white, but also blonde and blue-eyed. Matt Ryan Ryan's eyes are brown, but who notices? Um, My point here is sort of a complicated mishmash of things. That many fans see Constantine's blonde hair and British origin as key features of his character. Hmm. That the story rarely does well enough to interrogate Constantine's whiteness, despite him being a character who certainly opposes racism. And the pushback to Reeves as Constantine, who is of mixed descent, despite often being read as white, struck me as interesting. I think it is also interesting because when you look at the show and the movie, and I think you've said this, which one feels more Constantine? I think we can both agree that the movie feels more of in a Constantine type of feel. Mm-hmm. Um, but Constantine himself doesn't look the same, but does that make it not Constantine? That And that is the question, yeah. isn't it? I'll get more, we'll get more into that yeah. later. I think that's, I would never, ever have thought about that. And I think it's totally valid to be like, Keanu Reeves doesn't look like Constantine, that's not my Constantine. But at the same time, does the looks really make Constantine? Yeah. Or does the substance? Exactly. Oh, that's um, so interesting. Again, I, I don't want to imply that being opposed to Reeves as Constantine makes you racist. 
I don't, no. I'm not saying that. Only that there is a sort of network of ideas here that make the resistance to Reeves interesting to me, especially when one of my hangups about the recent run from Spurrier was the lack of interrogation of what British versus foreign meant when the real issue seemed to be whiteness. Now, I have been revisiting season four of Legends of Tomorrow, and I didn't make it all the way through it um, because life. Um, but I think that there is actually an attempt to kind of sideways lightly grapple with Constantine's legacy, specifically in the in the episode Nip Stuck, um, which involves uh, time travel, of course, um, and Constantine's legacy as descended from Constantine, um, who was a ruler who were shown in that episode is opposed. Like he he kind of he does the whole like deporting your sorry ass to hell thing um, against an innocent creature. And this, that whole season is about interrogating the attitudes toward the other, interrogating, like, the nature of imprisonment. Like, and again, Legends of Tomorrow is a very silly, very goofy show. And it's not, like, going to, like, I don't think it's going to, like, seriously, like, change your mind or anything. It's assuming that you're already to some degree on board. Um, but at least there was that attempt to kind of grapple with Constantine's legacy of whiteness and the power that that grants him in a way that I unfortunately don't see. In, I haven't seen through the comics that I have read, but I would really like to see. Um, I could see Constantine walking around nowadays being like, I'm woke. <laughs> I don't think he would ever say woke. No, but he would say it like as he wakes up. <laughs> yeah. I like, I think, Yeah. It's complicated. I I wish I like I wish that we could have seen where that comic was going because I, I like I feel like it was getting there. The fact that the the birds part really the birds the part with the with Blake in the park being so willing to just yeah. volunteer to Constantine. Hi, I'm a big racist and you must be too because you look like me. Yeah. Or the fact that um he made a racist joke to the police officer, um and it's like yeah it's not like he was making a wordplay joke, right? Like it was, it's the joke when he, the hide and seek is the punchline. Mm. Um, he's making, Oh yeah, it's, it's wordplay that he's doing there, but it's offensive wordplay. What gives him the right to do that? Yeah. What gives him the ability to feel comfortable saying that to a Sikh man? That's the kind of thing I wanted to see interrogated and it didn't get there, whether because it wasn't the intent of the creators or because it got canceled prematurely. We may never know. Um, so a little bit more here on noir, because the, the more I got into this, the more I'm like, you know what? I think we could fairly call it a neo-noir. And I, I don't know that it's the best descriptor. Missy does not give this out lightly, though. I don't. I have to say. The fact that I, when I was reading this, I'm like, she's really going to do it. I'm, I'm going to say, I think it's fair. Because I'm, even so, like you're even hesitant on the genre neo-noir. Yes, I am. Um, so this is a quote from The Haunted Heart of Constantine by Priscilla Page, who writes, Constantine plays with shades of noir from the doomed fatalism of the paranoid noir to the hard-boiled noir of gumshoes like Sam Spade, Mike Hammer, and Philip Marlowe. The detective story is a riff on the quest of the knight errant, and though Constantine would never admit it, he's essentially a knight in tarnished armor. In his letters, Raymond Chandler wrote that the detective is, quote, the avenging justice, the bringer of order out of chaos, unquote, a perfect description of John Constantine who brings order out of the ultimate chaos, the threat of the apocalypse i think constantine being a detective story is right on right i would agree i would totally agree yeah that. like that i think is totally like yes it is not all detective stories are noir though you can have all sorts of subgenres within mystery fiction cozy caper hard-boiled those are all types of hard-boiled yes hard-boiled refers specifically to the um very 
uh, eggy people, eggy people. <laughs> it's the um, really intense, uh, serious, even brutal sort uh, of police detective. Hard or, boy. I really just think of eggs. That's fair. Um, so the inclusion of a detective does not necessarily mean noir, right? It, like Miss Fisher's Murder Mysteries is a story about a detective, and that's not a fucking noir. Yeah, right. Hercule Poirot, not a noir detective. Uh, uh, what's that one? Not Matilda. Matilda. <laughs> the other one where she's Harriet the Spy. Harriet the, Sp- the Spy, not a noir. <laughs> um, again, noir is really difficult to define. Some of the hallmarks of noir, such as a femme fatale, are not present in every iconic noir, which is why we can't say simply say, oh, that has slatted blinds, a detective, and a femme fatale, therefore it's a noir. In fact, some noir don't have femme fatales at all. That wasn't mm-hmm. part of the story. Um, but I think some of what we discussed above does suggest that there is some intentional channeling of noir in the movie. I don't know that that necessarily makes it noir. Like the 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 desire to make it noir doesn't necessarily make it so. But after going through all of this, it does make me feel like noir is an appropriate word to describe it. Um, here's just a few more pieces of evidence. Uh, <laughs> 15 years later, this is a quote from 15 years later, we owe Constantine an apology by Raphael Motomayor, who writes, though this slow burn mystery focused approach didn't connect with some fans of the comic book, it allowed for a unique film experience as Constantine offers a religious twist on the detective story. The God of Constantine is a distant, cold, reserved and calculating figure, a constant foil to our protagonist who guides him along to find the clues, eventually saves his soul and gives him another assignment. In other words, God himself plays something of a surrogate femme fatale whose unseen presence is nevertheless felt throughout the film. I would actually argue here that Constantine plays the role of the femme fatale. Oh my God. Um, to Angela's detective. Uh, the femme fatale is typically a woman who acts against gender expectations to guide the male character down a path of destruction. But that comes from 1940s and 50s anxieties about women gaining social power. Um, I'm not sure that there is a gen- ge- uh, like a gender element to Constantina's femme fatale, by which I mean, I don't know that there's like, oh, a dangerous man will lead you down the path of supernatural belief like i don't think that's what's happening i mean that's true in life that's true um but but i would definitely argue that he is the one that leads angela down a dark path right for sure he introduces her to magic he accidentally is the reason she ends up possessed and he's happens and he's attractive to her without him necessarily reciprocating unless it is useful to him right like there could be sexual attraction between angela and constantine um she's clearly attracted to him he seems attracted to her but we're not like it's not consummated. It's not like acted upon. It's very light sexual tension. Yeah. Sometimes like when he puts the necklace around her. Right. Yeah. And like when he's not sure if she needs when he's like, I'm not I'm still deciding if you need to have your clothes off. Yeah. Like, that yeah, kind of stuff. yeah. Like, and and like the director talked and like uh, I know death of the author. We don't care about what he had to say about this. But he like he identified this as a purposeful choice. And like part of the reason like um Constantine in the original version of the film had a girl, a demon girlfriend named Ellie. Um, Love a good demon girlfriend. It's true. Um, but that was cut from the film because they wanted Constantine to be lonely and isolated. I, you know how you look back, you watch um, The Matrix, and you're like, he was a babe. Mm-hmm. I watched this and I was like, yeah. He is a babe. He is. He's a babe. I, when I was a high schooler, no. But now, as a grown adult who has better taste, mm-hmm. um, yeah. He's a babe. Constantine can get it. Yeah. Whether I take it or not, because he's a mess, mm. I probably would. <laughs> he's a babe, though. He is. He and looks I feel like babe. So good. Babe is the perfect descriptor for yeah. for Reeves. Like, he's, he is 
Constantine, though, is the epitome of a like horror bimbo himbo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he really is. Yeah. And so it works with Keanu Reeves because he is a babe. It's true. So I think that everything that this this quote had about it as noir with the distant uncaring God and that kind of thing is very interesting. But in terms of God being the femme fatale, I disagree with that. And I would instead suggest that Constantine himself plays the role of the femme fatale. I love that. Um, not, and I, again, I would really have to do some deep thinking about like, what, like, is there a gender element to this? Um, I think there's an intentional flipping, right. Of the Mm -hmm. fact that the police detective is the woman and the femme fatale figure is a man. But I don't know that that is making a commentary on gender in the same way that it would have, like, had this been a movie developed in the 40s would have Mm -hmm. been, you know. Um, I'm not convinced of it. I'm not convinced of it, but I find it very interesting. I think, yeah, further further investigation by a detective would be needed. Yes. Um, So this is a quote. It's from an interview. It's interview with Constantine director Francis Lawrence. The interview was by Stacey Lane. It's it was all one word. So I did my best guess on how to say that uh, on the surface. This is again, quote from Francis Lawrence on the surface. To me, it's this really simple story about this guy who's dying of cancer and knows he's going to hell and he's trying to prevent it. He's this great anti-hero. He doesn't want to be doing what he's doing, but he has to, he's doing what he's doing for selfish reasons. I mean, I love that story simply on its own beneath that. There's some really interesting ideas with this movie, I think, uh, And it's really this idea of sort of blurring the lines between good and evil and people's perceptions of good and evil. One of the best instances I can talk about, it's a scene at the end, which might give things away, but there's a certain character who could be portrayed as evil, but thinks they're really good. And I think it's kind of fitting for these times when we're on in sort of, we're sort of in a world where we're being told what is evil when it might not really be evil. And I just think it's really important for people to really sort of sit down and think about what is evil. What I like about the movie, that it's not just black and white. Those lines are blurred. I'm really grateful that Lawrence said this and not I intentionally set out to make it a noir because then I wouldn't be able to use it. Um, (laughs) But what he's talking about here is quite in line with how noir works. Noir is a lot about the interrogation of power. It's a lot about interrogation of things like police power specifically. Um, Good people doing bad things, bad people doing good things, a lack of clear morality, especially because in this quote, Lawrence then ties it into the modern world, even if I don't know exactly what he's referencing. Right? I don't know specifically what he means by people are telling us something is good when it isn't. People are telling us something is bad when it isn't. See, when I hear that, I think of like, I think of religion and terrorism. Yeah. And I think those are both fair. He didn't make a clear line for me in the same way that like, the comics do. Yeah. But I think given the time period, mm-hmm. I think that it was, uh, I mean, people were demonizing, um, well, they always have um, the queer community mm-hmm. and um, religion was really telling you, if you don't believe this, you're a bad person mm-hmm. and things like that. So that, that for me, like aligns exactly with what we were talking about earlier. Yeah. So I'm still not going to call Constantine a horror movie. I don't feel that it's accurate. Um, I think that it might appeal to horror fans, but I don't know that it's horror. But I might call it a supernatural noir um, because I think that the horror comes less from the demons themselves and more from the fact that the universe is uncaring and we have very little power to fix that. I think that that is more the driving thrust of the film than be scared of demons, right? Which I think is not necessarily like, I mean, of course you have nuanced horror movies like um, Get Out, for example. I mean... So much as you can say that that's nuanced. I actually don't know that Get Out is super nuanced. It's pretty fucking clear yeah. <laughs> about what it's saying. Maybe that was a bad example. We'll yeah. go with Midsommar. Okay. 
Um, Midsommar is a horror movie or hereditary for that matter, for that matter. Um, quite scary. A lot of visuals that are quite scary, but is it really the demon part that's scary? No, it's when there's a fucking demon inside of her. <laughs> it's not like the demon itself that is scary. No. It's more so the like generations of trauma, unresolved <laughs> trauma, you know, that really simple thing. Yeah. Trauma. Yeah. That that to me speaks of horror. And like in that case, I don't know, maybe it is a horror movie, but I just don't feel that it's clear enough. I think that noir is a better descriptor than horror. And that will bring us to the final section here. We're doing we're only in an hour. I know. Killing it. You have been talking really fast though. Yeah. You're just so excited. I'm just so excited. Uh the final section, of course, is to debate whether or not Constantine and Constantine are good adaptations. Um, this far, we've talked mostly about the movie. And while I still do want to talk about the movie with regard to adaptation, my argument is a lot shorter there because I already wrote about it. And I'll link it in the show notes. Um, I can just read what I said, basically. I wrote a really facetious article called An Objective and Completely Accurate Ranking of John Constantine Knockoffs, <laughs> in which I outline why I like John Constantine as a character. And then I rank four knockoffs of Constantine. Those four knockoffs are... Castiel, Harry Dresden, Rupert Giles from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and Constantine from the movie Constantine. I think this is a great list. Did people get mad at you at all for this? No. Okay. Bummer. Uh, the only, the only like, even remotely critical comment I got was somebody saying, I don't know that, that Henry Dresden or Harry Dresden really fits here. And I'm like, you know what? That's fair. Um, basically, my argument here, and you could just go ahead and read this yourself, but um, my <laughs> argument here is that the Keanu Reeves movie is as much a knockoff as it is an adaptation um, because while there's a lot of things that are different and there's a lot of things that make it feel not like, you know, not my Constantine about it. Um, the thrust of the story feels hellblazer to me. I agree. Um, and we we will get into that is why that is in and the last, in the last episode, we established some features that we expect from a good Hellblazer story, right? Yes. Which include Constantine is an anti-hero, not a superhero. Yeah. yeah. Imagine. Uh, a one step forward, two steps back approach to resolutions, it's perfect. right? perfect. It's great. Politics. A must for me. You gotta have them. Uh, clear engagement with the real alongside the supernatural, by which Important. I mean, by which I mean, you know, Hermes. we talked about, <laughs> we talked about, uh, Margaret Thatcher is real. Demon soul brokers, probably not real. <laughs> but the two things exist alongside one another as real within the story. Uh, Constantine's guilt and self-hatred. If he doesn't hate himself, he's not Constantine. Uh, I don't think that all of these things need to be present to tell a good Constantine story, but I do expect to see some of them. And the more I see, the better. A lot of people who love the comics but don't like the movie have a few reasons for feeling that way, including what they see as a, mi mix a mischaracterization of Constantine. Not just his appearance, we already talked about that, but the lack of humor. I disagree. I think the movie's really funny, and I think that some of the things Constantine says are really funny. They're I think, for me, it wasn't. It didn't have that same humor, and something I liked, which I only really saw in... No, that's not true. Something I liked about his humor was that it never felt doom and gloom, which mm -hmm. I feel sometimes in the Constantine movie, it does feel doom and gloom. I think it is doom and gloom, but I think that Reeves's delivery of the lines often makes it feel like it's not a joke when in fact I think it like I think he is quite funny. Well, it's interesting though because it feels very dry, which feels very British. 
Yeah. <laughs> um, I like so I disagree that that Constantine of the movie is not funny, but you know that's subjective. Um, the changed origin story, the fact that he's an exorcist more so than a magician. Listen, no one can get the magician right, anyways. And one thing I actually don't see talked about him is is having a two hundred dollar shirt. Constantine would never. Oh my god, I didn't think about that unless he stole it. Unless he stole it, I that's that is that is a sin to me. He would have a two hundred dollar shirt and use it as a rag. <laughs> like that that part of the movie I just go what where is he getting that money yeah like what come on man doesn't make any sense to me that is weird I never thought about that um which like I'm not gonna argue that the movie is a great adaptation because to be honest I don't think that it is but I would classify Reeves's Constantine as a sort of alternate universe Constantine the beats of the story that I like are there guilt politics if you squint uh, Constantine's self-interest getting other people killed uh, even if they don't perfectly line up. I mean, to be fair, there's an alternate universe within the comics, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so is it a good adaptation? Not really. But it's close enough for me, right? Yeah. It scratches the itches. I think that liking the movie but not the comics or liking the comics but not the movie makes perfect sense because they are fundamentally different from yeah. one another. It just so happens that I feel like the movie gets at some of the themes I like in the comics. It just does so in a different manner. Yeah. Which is going to bring us to the show. Here we go. Buckle in. (laughs) The show directly adapts some of the comic arcs, such as Hunger, Mm -hmm. to a more direct degree, actually, than the movie. The movie just takes a few scenes from Hunger, um, such as the scene with Father Hennessy drowning in alcohol. That was so good, though. Um, It takes elements elements of Ghosts in the Machine, the episode where Richie and Constantine are in... Oh, that was good. I like that. haunted house. I did like that in the end. I thought it was really good. Yeah, like that that felt like it was inspired by Ghosts in the Machine for me. Um, and Waiting for the Man, right? That was also pretty straightforwardly adapted with with the dead girls and I was so, so on. fucked up. It was. The, it, book, the comic did it better, but it wasn't awful. Yeah. It also has, again, the perfect casting for Constantine. Oh, it's just, it's just, and it's from the network that brought you Hannibal, the weirdest, most fucked up queer love story on network TV. <laughs> Except, woof is what I have to say about the show, Constantine. The pre-show buzz took a serious hit after a disastrous press conference when a journalist asked if Constantine would be bisexual and if he would smoke in the adaptation. Now, one thing I want to make clear before we get into this section is that I, a bisexual person, do not think that Constantine being bisexual is so important to his character that if I can't tell he's bisexual from the story that you are doing it wrong. Note that it was not part of our criteria that we talked about above. In fact, I did not know that Constantine was bisexual when I watched the movie and fell in love with the character. I did not know that it was bisexual, that it was bisexual. I did not know that he was bisexual when I was reading the comics because I hadn't read the issue where that came up. Which is early. Which is early, but I hadn't read it. I haven't made it to Brian Azzarello's run. So like, I did not know that he was bisexual and that did not impact my enjoyment of him whatsoever. It was more so when I found out he was bisexual, I was like, that tracks that tracks um like but there is a difference between not depicting it and de-emphasizing it and i would argue that the lack of even hinting at constantine's bisexuality in the show is part of a broader problem if you're not saying he's fucking king shark then what are you doing (laughs) i just can't get over it normally when i say coward i'm being facetious right when i say oh do it cowards or whatever normally when i say that i'm being facetious to some degree and that's not untrue here either i am being facetious 
but to a degree at the same time. But I also think the show really flinches away from the parts of Hellblazer that make it compelling, especially the politics. Yes. I think the show might be too coward, too much. Like I think it's too coward, cowardice, cowardly. That's the word I'm looking yeah. for. It's too cowardly to do it right. It doesn't even try to do the politics. That's the thing. And what I what they don't seem to see is that by avoiding controversy, which I think is what they were trying to do, by avoiding stirring up controversy, they are also making a political choice. Yep. It is a political choice to take elements out of the story, including Constantine's bisexuality. Because so, why? Because why? Why? Why do you feel like you need to? Exactly. So, b- before we zoom out, let's zoom in on the sexuality issue because there are a number of factors that pissed me off before the show debuted, <laughs> and they only made me angrier when it finally did debut. And I watched three episodes and then gave up because he just lied and. <sighs> And then when I finally watched the full show for this episode. So this was during an interview with When Nerds Attacks. uh, A journalist asked whether Constantine would be bisexual in the show. And I'll link to the interview in the show notes so you can watch it for yourself. But I'm going to give a little summary here. So I think I got that this is Goyer speaking and not the other showrunner. But I may be wrong. So, you know, check for yourself. So David S. Goyer asks, so the the journalist says, will, you know, essentially, will Constantine be bisexual in the show? David S. Goyer responds, he asks when when was um when was Constantine introduced as bisexual in the comics? The journalist replies, and she is wrong in this, which she acknowledged later. It was just in the heat of the moment. She said the wrong thing. Um, she says back an image before it was owned by DC. Goyer replies that it was 12 years into the character's history, referring to the chunk of the series by Brian Azzarello, which I have not read, but I believe includes his first on-page sexual relationship with a man, in that he is depicted getting out of bed with another man. Um, The issue here is, A, that's not true. The character first mentioned having had, quote, the odd boyfriend in a guest issue in 1992, which was four years after he was introduced as a character. Sorry. Stuck on that. After he was, after he got his own series, he was introduced in 1985. And B, he wears a horrible blue suit in the first couple of appearances, not to mention no red tie, but somehow Goyer isn't taking issue with that change. I just think it's weird to be like, well, when was he? We have to, like, uh, it just seems like a weird comment to say. Mm-hmm. Like, as if everything af- everything new is not Constantine. That's right. kind of how it feels like, well, the new stuff isn't actually Constantine. Yeah. We're, we're making a show about actually about Constantine. Yeah. And see, like, so fucking what, dude? Is there a reason that we have to wait to introduce yeah. himself as to introduce him as bisexual? Like, what is the hang up here? Um, so this is a quote from Constantine team on why NBC character isn't bisexual smoking, comma, smoking cigarettes by James Hibbard. When asked about this at the Television Critics Association semi-annual press tour Sunday, executive producer Daniel Cerrone ran down the various editions of the character that have existed since the demon fighter was introduced in 1985 to suggest his sexuality is not a crucial aspect of the character. Nearly all of the character's relationships in the comics have been with women. In these comics books, sorry, quote, in these comic books, John Constantine aged in real time, he said. Within this tome of three decades of comics, there might have been one or two issues where he's seen getting out of bed with a man. So maybe 20 years from now, but there are no immediate plans, unquote. Here's what I have to say to that. Bruh. That's it. Um, no, <laughs> the thing that really irritates <laughs> the thing that really irritates me about this is that other Constantine writers have had no trouble alluding to Constantine being bisexual without having an on-screen relationship. He doesn't even have to say I'm bisexual, especially because that doesn't seem like something he would do. Like I can't see John Constantine going around being like, "Hello, I'm John Constantine. I'm bisexual." Yeah. Um, 
for for example, in Spurrier's run, he says he learned sign language from an ex-boyfriend and then goes on to be really crude about it. So we know that not only is he bisexual, but he has sex with men. Mm-hmm. Like we know in no uncertain terms without depicting him on the page with another man that he is bisexual. Mm-hmm. We know that it is it is made abundantly clear to us. Um, another quote from that that same article, Constantine team on why NBC character isn't bisexual by James Hibbard. It's like, look, he's a smoker, Saron said. We're on network television, so we're limited to what we can what we can do and what we can show. But within that framework, we're going to be very honest to the character. I believe Constantine has a very he- healthy sex life. We're not going to see that on TV either. We, <laughs> we actually do see his very healthy sex life on TV. Oh. We see him flirting with women, seducing women, kissing women, jumping out of women's beds, etc. So what this tells me is that it wasn't his very healthy sex life that was the issue, but rather his bisexuality. And further, he does smoke on the show. Yeah, right. There's, there's just so many lies happening here to like mental gymnastics. The fact that you're just possibly homophobic the thi- like <laughs> i really think i don't even know that it's homophobia so much as they're trying to not be political i Which think is it's awful that is a political choice that you've made right like this is you're not being apolitical you are being political you are just choosing to avoid a specific kind of controversy yeah. by courting another um and i understand that this is nbc and it's 2015 and maybe they didn't have the corporate backing to make it happen like i that is a, entirely a possibility but if that's the case, you could simply allude to it by having a conversation like an exchange between Constantine and another character being like, where'd you learn that trick? Oh, an ex. Where'd she learn it? He learned it from a witch down in Argentina, right? That accomplishes it. Loki did this. Yeah. Very uh, simple. Peacemaker did this. Yeah. Or hear me out. Just don't act like a dick to journalists for ac- asking these kinds of questions. <sighs> like, sorry, you don't lie. Yeah. Sorry, you're annoyed about being asked repeatedly, bud. But it's also annoying to have this piece of his history erased, but allow him to have for multiple flirtations with women. Like it is again, it is less that I absolutely need Constantine to be depicted as bisexual on the screen or it's not Constantine to me because that's untrue. Like that is that is literally untrue. However, this deliberate avoidance of it irritates me, especially in especially in conjunction with the way that the show steered so clearly away from the political elements of the stories that they adapted. That's what really gets me. Okay, so the the animated movie came out in 2018, and I'm just really curious if that guy was a producer or because the yeah he's an executive producer. Because the reason I bring that up is because in in I watched the animated movie and I didn't. It was, it was this was Apocalypse? No. Uh, it is City of Angels. City of Angels. In City of Angels, he John Constantine has sex with uh <laughs> Los Angeles the city. The city. But it's she at the, the personification yes, of the person, Los that's the word I'm looking for. And and the, this personification is a woman. Later at the end of the show, the personification this is the same person city just looks different is an older black man who then kisses Constantine and Constantine says, Oh no, 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 that's not for me. Bitch, you already had, you already fucked him. <laughs> so like that, that to me, maybe he just doesn't like kissing. <laughs> no, <laughs> that's not what's happening. So to me like that on top of this just feels really like gross kind of. Yeah. It's just, I don't know what it is about Constantine being bisexual. That seems to rub uh, the NBC and DC like non-Legends of Tomorrow um, 
Constantine writers the wrong way, but like they seem to just really be mad about I'd it. I'd be really curious to see who they who their target audience was because was it mm-hmm. men? Because this movie or the the show doesn't feel like it's written for men. Yeah, the show is interesting. It's very interesting. And like if they would have done any type of actual research, they would have found that the audience in which it feels like it's written for, which it feels like it's written for people who like Supernatural, would have been all for him mm-hmm. being bi. Like they would have been like, yes, we're, even if he's not, we're going to say it. Yeah. So like I just I'm curious who they really thought did, like was their target audience because it feels like a CW show to me. It feels very bright and poppy, which is actually one of the reasons I don't think it works for me um but if they would have done the research on that audience i feel like they would have found that even more so Mm -hmm. like come on you can't make anything more like gay than you did hannibal Mm -hmm. so what's the hang up here yeah like i understand that network tv is probably not going to like them going after say contemporary politicians Mm -hmm. or whatever but again hannibal was on the same network at the same time there are ways to be gutsy and daring if you choose and it repeatedly feels like they did not choose to me that is what it feels like is it feels like they were trying to stay away from a very specific kind of controversy by choosing to be apolitical but in fact choosing like quote unquote choosing to be apolitical is a political choice yeah there is no such thing as being apolitical when you remove the politics from something all you've done is made a different political choice um one of the really irritating things about the show to me was that it felt like a supernatural ripoff when supernatural is itself aping hellblazer um calstiel's outfit is not a coincidence like it is intended to look like john constantine and he's an angel and yeah and 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 similar media including just a whole bunch of work by neil gaiman but then they they did say loves men so hmm they did say in the end, Constant, uh, Castiel loves which whoever, which one it is. Yeah. So yeah, at least they made him. <laughs> I don't know if he likes women. So I don't know what the I don't know. They what made the deal him is. queer. Um, this is not inherently a bad thing to be based, like to be inspired by these different properties. But Hellblazer is its own thing, right? It's not the same as Supernatural. Yeah. And the show felt a lot to me like NBC does Supernatural rather than like Hellblazer. And the complete and utter lack of politics to Constantine's take, Constantine the show's take on the character is what really did it for me. Like, you're really going to have him suggest that it's okay to steal from a security guard because he wasn't a cop? You're implying that it's not okay to steal from cops? Implying that John Constantine wouldn't steal from a cop? Like, he'd go out of his way to steal from a cop. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It's just, why did they want to make this? That's really what it comes down to. Why did they want to make this? I feel like they wanted the supernatural dollars. But there's other, I feel like there's other ones they could have done mm-hmm. besides Constantine. He's cool. Is he? I mean, he is, but like, is he? He's cool. If like, the thing is, if you, if you just look at Constantine on a surface level and you just kind of adapt him as this con man with magic, he's cool. Yeah. If you if you like really get into the politics and stuff and like his like psyche, he's a deeply fucked up person. Um, and he's not cool. <laughs> he sucks. Yeah, he sucks. <laughs> um, one of the issues that I noticed was that despite being an asshole, right, there is some nuance to to the way that Constantine treats people versus how he thinks about them. A good example of this is in Hunger in the comic, when Constantine is annoyed about Gary whining about not having heroin. Um, and he thinks in the narration box that he thinks this, I could cheerfully choke him or I could cheerfully, I don't know, he basically says I could kill him. Um, but it's but that it's easier for him to think that way. 
I read this as it being easier to be angry with Gary than to empathize with him, meaning it is easier to blame someone and be angry with them if, for example, they have an addiction that inconveniences or hurts you. Uh, then whatever you do to them feels justified, right? So if in this case, what I'm what I'm saying here is that I read this as Constantine saying, I could easily kill him and I would feel better because it's easier to be angry with him than to realize that he has a problem that I contribute to, mm-hmm. not only because of the way I treat him, the way I leave him alone, but also because his addiction stems from the events at Newcastle. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of nuance packed into this this these two narration boxes. And this is a difficult, like any kind of narration box or that kind of thing is going to be difficult to capture in film, right? Without a voiceover, which can feel very cheesy, or a narration box or an outside um, conversation, like a conversation between two characters, which can kind of feel like, why the fuck are you talking about this? Um, But more to the point, I think that how callous he is in the comics is counterbalanced by the narration a lot of the time. Mm or even in Legends of Tomorrow, where he is surrounded by very earnest and kind people doing their best who won't let him wallow. Because growth is a primary part of Legends of Tomorrow's narrative, right? They mm-hmm. make a point of pushing Constantine into situations where revealing feelings is necessary. And the characters simply won't leave him alone because they're not scared of him. Like, they've dealt with worse than John Constantine. So they're not... They just kind of, they'll like, they'll, they'll push him out of his comfort zone. Legends of Tomorrow, I will say, is not a good Hellblazer story, although the subplot with Des might be. I feel like you could make a case that the, the, the Des subplot of season four is, in fact, a pretty good Hellblazer story. It's just that the ending's a little too happy. Um, <laughs> but I think that it does better by the character for me than most adaptations because it understands that he is a deeply broken character because he cares about things. Yeah, that is the missing element for me in a lot of adaptations. Um, and it constantly treats him like a fish out of water. Right. It doesn't it, he, like he's part of the team for sure. But the way that he acts in Legends of Tomorrow is uncomfortable with his surroundings. That is mm-hmm. how he acts. And I think that that is appropriate to the character. I feel like in superhero stories, he could be like he should be rather a fish out of water. Yeah. And we should be annoyed at everything yeah and we could have a whole conversation about the superhero-ness of legends of tomorrow which is a bonkers ass show we already (laughs) did an episode on it but i'm always ready to talk more about it um i think the characters like i think constantine's departure from the show was well handled and i think it was necessary um and i don't think that legends of tomorrow is a substitute for a great hellblazer adaptation the moods of the two are so fucking different like it feels like a lot of these things are trying to adapt constantine and not hellblazer i a hundred percent agree and i understand why that is because he was folded into the larger dc universe Mm -hmm. and when that happened he did become more of a straightforward like almost superhero like character as opposed to like a deeply broken old punk musician who's tired because uh, he's old he's old and i don't like like i said i don't think that legends of tomorrow is a good substitute for a hellblazer adaptation that does right by the character but it has so many other things that i like about it that a good constantine in a show that does get political like hits just right yeah like again legends of tomorrow is a much lighter in tone show it deals with politics but on a very feel-good way You know, like, you know who the villain is. You know how you're meant to read it. But the fact that Legends of Tomorrow actually is political and intentionally so 
that hits right for me in a way that Constantine the show did not because it veered so hard away from politics. It feels like Legends of Tomorrow is our modern day Animorphs. <laughs> and that's so ridiculous. I don't ridiculous. think it's dark enough to be well, Animorphs. What I mean by that is like it's so ridiculous that maybe the producer, the 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 networks aren't paying as close of attention to Truly, what they're saying. Nobody knows how Legends of Tomorrow is still on. It sheds viewers every season and all 12 of us still watching the show are just <laughs> praying that nobody notices. Um, I, I will say, having now rewatched or been in the process of rewatching season four of Legends of Tomorrow, it isn't as good as it used to be. But I still like it because I love it. And it's goofy. I like it because I love it. Thank you for uh, giving me attention when I say such brilliant things as I like it because I love it. <laughs> anyway, I think it's still a good show. Uh, there were some things that the show got right. And, and this is the thing. I don't want to dunk on the show entirely because I think that there are some elements that mm-hmm. of, of it that are quite good. There's a part in the episode with Anne-Marie where I think Chaz tells her Constantine would rather risk your feelings than any other part of you. Which feels extremely true. That felt dead on. I was mm-hmm. like, yes, yes, there you it got is. it. You got it. Um, I think He's grasping at anything you can find. Yeah. I think the scene in episode three where he puts on headphones to not get possessed yeah. by the record is great. Even if I feel like he would hate the sex pistols. I looked it up in at least one comic. He does fucking hate the sex. Yeah, pistols. right. Especially like now. Like it isn't one of them like super yeah. awful. Yeah. Very right wing now that he has fame. It happens a lot with. That kind of, but like also the the sex pistols in terms of punk like they brought punk to the mainstream for a lot yeah. of people but like that's exactly the would I would think would be the problem for I Constantine would, I would imagine that he they use that because it's most people's only yeah they want people to recognize it as punk they want it to be the the touchstone so they're gonna go with a song that people recognize as representative of but punk. I think it's pretty bad when Marissa Cooper can name more punk bands. <laughs> Known punk rocker Marissa Cooper. I'm not wrong. (laughs) I like that Zed is Latina. Maybe especially because the show ended before we saw the conclusion of the Resurrection Crusade storyline. And I feel like they probably would not have done the fear machine where Zed kind of gets a cool resurgence. So I liked liked that they made Zed Latina. I thought that was nice. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like there is an understanding of the character, but the execution is all off for me. Um, And predictably, there's too much magic, which is also true of Legends (sighs) of Tomorrow. He does way too much magic. He is not a good magician. Stop trying to make him a good magician. Like, anytime he's waving his arms around and there's circles appearing like Doctor Strange, I'm like, you're doing too much. This is too much. It's like... there's a moment in where he casts a spell and it's over Chaz and it's like, I really thought it was, you're no longer sober so you can drive. And I was like, yeah, this is it. You're no longer drunk so you can drive. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) This is, this is the magic he should be doing. That is not what it was. um, But in my head, I'll keep it that way. Cause that felt, that felt right. Yeah. You're my friend. I'm going to use my, my skills to make you um, not die. And for selfish reasons. Yeah. And for very selfish reasons. Yeah. Um, this is a, a last quote here from interview with, Con- with Constantine director Francis Lawrence by Stacey Lane. Um, and Francis Lawrence says, I don't necessarily think that the demons are really bad. Certain ones, Balthazar, yes. Some of those demons, though, if you've noticed, they have no brains. And it actually came from an idea that I had trying to find a new way to portray demons because they're usually like these big fangs and they're all muscular. They'll have horns and they're really evil. And I wanted to do something else. And I think these demons were once people. So they're a little more tortured. They're skinny. Their stomachs are bloated. They're all twisted up. 
but they have no brains. And I remember I'm a scuba diver and I went cage diving with sharks once. And I remember they were feeding these sharks and there's these blue sharks swimming around and they're man eaters. And I remember looking at these things thinking these things aren't evil creatures. It's just all they know how to do. And you look at them and they're kind of dumb. And that's what I thought of these guys. These guys are just like they're just programmed to eat and feed. They just sniff the stuff out and go and eat it, you know. And so it's this. It's not this sort of, they don't have this hatred or this sort of evil propulsion to go and attack. It's just what they do. And Satan, I think, is actually kind of fun in a weird way. I love this. <laughs> the reason I put, the reason I brought this up is because to me, this exemplifies why the movie works for me and the show did not work for me, which is that the movie has a vision, right? Mm -hmm. The movie has a vision for what it's doing. It has these interest, this interesting takes on, on demons that they're brainless, that they look a lot like people. It has these ideas maybe about abortion and sexual auto autonomy and sexual violence and those kind of things. It has an idea and it is seeing it through to the end. I'm not sure that the show has a vision in the same way. The show is, like, like you said, Mary, the show is adapting the character yeah. of Constantine. I don't know that it's adapting Hellblazer. And that's not, you know, like, that's fine is the thing. The version of Constantine that I like is not everybody's Constantine. There are people who love Justice League Dark out there. It's not me, but they're there. People love it. It's not what I'm about. So the show just may not be for me. When people say it's the comics, they might be referring to the DC comics, not the Vertigo comics. But then again, then they adapt Hunger and waiting for the man and that kind of stuff, but yeah. they strip all the politics out of it. And it just like, it just, you know, it was just a bummer is what it felt like to me. And yeah. like I said, there are times when it, when it did stuff that I really liked the, the cute, uh, cute is not the right word. The, is it what we aim for? No, <laughs> the, the like references to the comic covers and that kind of stuff in Zed's artwork. I liked that. Did you notice that one of them was the football guy? No. Yeah, there was a brief shot of one of her pieces of art that was the the football guys huh. stuck together. Um, oh, I'm sad. Um, la like there was there was clearly love for the comics and like the Vertigo comics put into the show. The execution felt like it was for somebody else, and that doesn't make it bad, but I don't think it makes it a good Hellblazer adaptation. Yeah. Now maybe that's not how it was built. Maybe I saw Constantine and thought Hellblazer, whereas other people saw Constantine and thought Justice League Dark. That's fair. Yeah, you know that's the thing is I can't. I I think it's a bad. I think it's. A, I can say this. I think it's a bad adaptation of Hellblazer. Yeah, but I think there's definitely there's definitely an argument to be made that they weren't adapting Hellblazer. Yeah, they were at times literally adapting Hellblazer in terms of hunger and waiting for the man. But were they adapting it or were they just taking those stories? Were they just referencing it? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, I think it's a bad adaptation of Hellblazer. Maybe it's a better adaptation of things like Justice League Dark or some of yeah. the non-Vertigo Constantine series. Like Constantine the Hellblazer, um, I thought was was fairly good for mm -hmm. the, um, that was the run by, I think, James the IV and Ming Doyle. I thought that that was fairly good. And that was a DC proper title. Yeah, I was sad with uh, Waiting for the Man because part of the reason I love that story is because it's his niece and her parents are super religious. The whole, the whole religion The whole thing. Christian um, MLM thing. Yeah. 
to take that out is to take out one of the most interesting parts of the story. And the story and like the, the, sh- the something the show did was the primary source of evil was, in fact, supernatural in origin, not from people in origin. People in these stories were generally good. And I don't think that people being generally good is like not something covered in Hellblazer. But we have to address the real in a good Hellblazer story in my opinion, the real should be addressed alongside the unreal. Agreed. And there was very little engagement with the real. Agreed. Um, it just was. And I think all in all, the worst part is it was just boring. Yeah. And it's a sh- there's parts of it that were very yeah. enjoyable. It's like, I feel, <laughs> I think the whole time we were watching it, we kept going, poor Matt Ryan. I know. Because right? like he do- he really does a good job. He is a great Constantine. Yeah, he's great. That's one of, again, one of the things that like I really enjoy about season four of Legends of Tomorrow is he feels like Constantine out of his genre. Yeah. And not that they change the genre to suit, Con- sorry, not that they change Constantine to shoot the, to suit the genre. It feels like the Constantine that I like placed into the wrong kind of story. I love that. Which I feel like a lot of those characters probably are. Right. Those characters feel like they popped up in other um, DC CW shows where like, we're like, we don't need you anymore. And Legends of Tomorrow is like, poop. <laughs> poop. Poop. Yeah. My favorite thing is that like they wrote, they wrote Constantine out of the show in a way that was, I thought, well done. But Matt Ryan is still there. That's they do that, don't they? They love to do that. But yeah, I this is the thing for me. I don't think that Constantine the movie is a good adaptation of Hellblazer. But I think that it hits a lot of the right notes. And if you don't look at it as an adaptation and you look at it instead as kind of an alternate universe, I think it's a kind of successful Hellblazer story. I would 100% agree. I think that Constantine the show is not a good adaptation of Hellblazer. It might be a good adaptation of Constantine in the DC universe. That's not the Constantine I care for, but it's it might be good for somebody. And it's just boring. And it's it's it was just kind of dull. There are better shows doing that kind of stuff. Um, I think that Legends of Tomorrow, not a good Hellblazer adaptation, but it seems to be adapting the the Constantine that I love into a different kind of story. And that is why, despite the fact that I talked about the fact that Constantine is not a superhero in our last episode, Legends of Tomorrow works for me with Constantine as a character in a way that Constantine the show did not. Um, even though it's literally the same person using the same musical notes, um, all like it still worked for me despite that. Um, so the the real the real thing here, I think, is that it's just really hard to adapt Hellblazer. I you know I thought I thought so much about this as I was watching the show because I'm like the elements are there and like I feel like we have it all, but why does it not? feel like it and I think it's just really hard to make something that doesn't feel like a supernatural show when it has this these same elements unless you're really digging into who Constantine really is Mm -hmm. and if you're not willing to do that it's difficult yeah because then it just feels like it did which was a supernatural ripoff yeah and and that's why like the it's not like again it's not the the lack of inclusion of Constantine by being bisexual that that bothers me like yeah of course I would have loved if he flirted or even looked at a man um listen they're in love especially in the show um anyway (laughs) uh it's not it's not that that was left out that that makes me like not like the show it's more so that that is a is a piece of the bigger problem which is the the lack of interest or the fear 
uh, of engaging with contemporary politics and potentially putting somebody off. It just the feels whole, He's weird. a punk musician, guys. He should be pissing people off. Why Why do they feel like, like, I don't know. It just feels weird to take his politics away because it felt, especially in that first issue, it just felt so important to who he was. Mm-hmm. And it was, and like, it was so progressive for what the time that it was. It just, it's just sad. Yeah, like it's not the, it's not to say that I think a Hellblazer adaptation could never work, but it, it has be to be. It would have to be a Hellblazer adaptation, you know. It would have to be okay with not being, um, not being relevant forever, mm-hmm. you know, because like the 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 stuff that goes on, for example, in the Spurrier run, like that's not going to be relevant forever. It's super relevant right now, mm-hmm. like the references to Boris Johnson and that yeah. kind of stuff. It's relevant right now, but it won't always be. And you kind of have to be, if you're going to adapt Hellblazer in a way that like satisfies me, I think you're kind of going to have to be okay with sometimes it's not, it, eventually it's not going to feel contemporary anymore. And that's okay. Yeah. I think that a good story can be, um, can, of its time. can be of its time and not applicable to all time periods. But like the themes are still there. Cause like, the Margaret Thatcher stuff, mm-hmm. um, it's not relevant anymore. She died. Like, we're, we we don't have to fear Margaret Thatcher herself anymore, but we can still fear, fear things like gentrification. Yep. Um, th- that fear still exists. And I think that's what a good Hellblazer adaptation would need to do for me. Um, I haven't had a good Hellblazer adaptation yet, but... One day, it's possible that you might. Yeah. Somebody out there. I mean, there are rumors it's happening on HBO. Yeah. But I was reading those rumors and they're like from two years ago. So, yeah, good luck. I mean, Guillermo del Toro has been supposedly developing a Justice League dark movie for a thousand years. He's been developing a million things for a thousand years. That's true. He's always doing something. Yeah. Um, Do you have anything else to say now that we've ended our our brief Constantine miniseries? No, I'm glad that you were able to experience this. Thank you. I'm glad that you're able to talk about noir and Legends of Tomorrow, Hellblazer, and Constantine. Hellblazer really is like a amalgamation of just like so many things that I love. Yeah. Um, and it's a crying shame there wasn't more scholarly work on it because I would still be reading it if that yeah. was the case. Missy owns all the cereal boxes of Constantine, <laughs> which she just eats right up. Can you imagine if they put Constantine <laughs> on a cereal box? What would the flavor be? Not anything you want to eat. What would the flavor be? I don't. I don't know. I feel like it's gonna be. I don't. Oh, that's a good question. Something that you eat when you're like still hungover from the night before, and you pour whiskey into it instead of milk, or maybe it makes your mouth numb, <laughs> like one of those chilies. Yeah, it's just it's made with alcohol. Um, you may you may hit us up if you would like one of these hot new products <laughs> ideas <laughs> for Hellblazer Constantine branded cereal. Oh, man, what about like a Constantine lipstick? That'd be sweet too. <laughs> cool would that all be different shades of red oh you know the sandman adaptation is coming perhaps and that will have well it's gonna have joanna constantine instead which is cool i'm interested in it um i hope that it scratches the itch that i've had for my whole life for i'm gonna laugh if they get constantine right with female Constantine. i'll laugh yeah i'll like i'm here for it honestly do it i i support you um do you have anything else to say no okay congratulations Um, thank you um it's been it's been a nice thing to research that's it for this episode you can find us online at fakeygirlscast.com which has links to all of our previous episodes as well as our podcast network penwich studio which has other great shows on it like the lovely craftians it's true you should check them out um 
If you like this podcast, consider leaving us a review. We like those. They help us make a better show. Yeah, it's true. As long as you're not like you're too mean to white people because I won't stop being mean to white person, yeah. white people as a white Sorry person. Sorry about it. I am a white person. I'm allowed to be mean to myself. Um, next time, we're going to be doing Skins. We're going to be doing all seven seasons of the show, which sounds like, hey, Missy, you should have split that up. You're not wrong. But the thing is that some of the seasons are only eight episodes. Some of them are only six episodes. So it's not that long. There you go. We might be including the US version. I'm not sure. It really depends on my ability to finish four seasons of a show in two weeks. We'll see how it goes. After that, we are going to... Okay, so I changed things a little bit in a way that I think is going to be helpful for us with regard to Fruits Basket. So we are (sighs) going to be doing two episodes on Fruits Basket. One is going to cover the first half of the manga and the first anime from ages ago. And the second one is going to cover the second half of the manga and the new anime. The reason the reason we split it up this way is because uh, Hell, uh, Hellblazer. I mean, that's really long, too. Um, Fruits Basket is really long. You Holy guys. shit, guys. Did you know it's super long? Because it's super so fucking long. long. And the first anime only covers like the first like it doesn't cover that many volumes. Um, How could it? Yeah, so it sto- It actually stops like long before the end of the series. So we're going to mm-hmm. just do that. And then we that will do works. This. Yeah, it happened. It, ha- it happens to work out. After that, we're going to be doing Eclipse. Uh, it's time for me to go back to Hill um, and read more Twilight. Uh, I was talking to some friends yesterday and complaining about having to do the Vampire Diaries to the person who commissioned us to do the Vampire Diaries, <laughs> along with our, uh, our friend Corey, who was like, well, at least you don't have to do Twilight. And I was like, I got news for you, Corey. Doing that one, too. All four books, baby. But they're really good conversations. They are good conversations. Are really and there's good. a lot of scholarly work on Twilight. Yes, this is true. Um, so that's it. All right. Catch you on the flip side. Hopefully it's not hell. We live on a placid island of ignorance in the midst of black seas of infinity, and it was not meant that we should voyage far. And yet here we are, in defiance of Lovecraft laughing through the darkness. The Lovely Craftians is an all-ladies Call of Cthulhu actual play podcast with horror, humor, and no small amount of chaos set in an occasionally familiar modern-day Chicago. Brought to you by Wampus House Productions and the Penwich Studio Network, you can find The Lovelies on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcatcher, or anytime over at lovelycraftians.com. And remember, you never roll sanity alone here.